This is Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Today, my guest is Kareem Harbutt. And Kareem's been here before, and we're going to pick up on something we discussed before, but we're going to talk about his book. So thank you for taking time out of your uh, afternoon for you, right? Afternoon, yes. Uh, and anytime, Dave, you know I enjoy being uh, being a guest on your wonderful podcast. <laughs> well, I appreciate you making time for it. So I want to just set this up by saying I reached out and requested this because the last time we talked... Kareem's book was, I think, almost finished being, you're almost done with like the pre-publishing stuff. Yeah. It was one of those pretty much done that lasts about six months, but it, yes, I was close. And, and we talked about the canvas and since then the book has come out and I started to read it and I am just honestly really, really enjoying it. So some things about this book that are awesome. I, my, my favorite thing is that uh, in explaining a lot of this stuff, Kareem's got a lot of references to historical stuff or different concepts and things like that. But he actually provides the information about it, which is much better than what most people do. They just like run past it. Um, so I, I just, I feel like I owe you a debt because I'm better schooled up now because of things like that. Uh, well, so. that's the, that's the idea. I, I read all of those hundreds of books so that uh, and, uh, others don't have to. So I'm glad I could be of service. <laughs> Well, I wasn't. I was. I decided I wasn't going to ask if you actually read the books because it seemed like it would take years to do it. But I, I either way, because I'm that crazy, I, I did. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but there we are. There we are. Cool. Well, um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the other stuff Kareem is working on in a bit. But I wanted to start out with this particular thing in the book that I kind of tripped over, and it just really stuck with me. So I asked Kareem if we could talk about. it. I'm going to read a quote from the book, and then we'll dig into the topic. And we can, Kareem, maybe we can tie it into the the video that you posted recently about sure, leadership sure. as well. So this is the quote: um, "What I do find surprising is that many organizations that embark on agile transformation have strong control and compete cultures as their current profile, and seem to have no desire to change. What this says to me is that the things they value most are stability and control." Why then try to adopt a model designed for the exact opposite, adaptability? Is it any wonder in such cases that there is friction, resistance, and unwillingness to make the necessary structural changes? These places do not make the necessary changes because they do not truly value the outcome those changes will deliver. So that's where I wanted to start. That really stuck with me because it seems like most of the places I, a lot of the places I've been, I don't want to say most, mm. that would be not fair. But do you just want to go off for a second and talk about it and then yeah. I'll start asking you questions? Definitely. Well, I'll say most of the places. And, uh, and Dave, you should have read the audio book version of, of my book because that, uh, that was smoothly <laughs> done. Better than uh, the BBC actor they had there. <laughs> but um, no, he was great too. Uh, yeah, so, so here's the thing. And, and this was a, a really useful model for me when I discovered it because like most Agilists, Scrum Masters, Agile Coaches, I've spent the vast majority of my career um, feeling like I'm pushing treacle uphill, right? And it's like I'm trying to get people to do stuff and they just resist at yeah. every step of the way. Um, and when I found this model, and I think you were referring to the competing values framework, which I, yeah. I talk about in the uh, organizational culture chapter. Um, when I found that, and it's, it's a really, really high level assessment that you do. And I've started doing this with my clients at the start to say, 
what what kind of culture do you have and what kind of culture would you like right because it's it's easy to know whatever what culture you have but if you if you if the culture you have is the culture you want and that is fundamentally incompatible with with agility then you have some interesting conversations and for me right it's identifying that early so that we don't all waste our time and the client doesn't waste their money trying to adopt a whole bunch of things that are going to move them away from what they want and and so actually identifying that at the start is a really powerful thing and it's really helped me um pick the clients that do want to change and maybe suggest to some clients that don't that they might just want to get better at what they do get better at waterfall use lean six sigma do the things that give you that stability and control because actually agility is not what you're after yeah so but don't you find that that they if you ask them what do you have that they'll they'll say oh we're a very open and transparent culture you know i tell everyone here they have to be transparent and, and open um <laughs> Do they have the self? That's like to me is like one of the biggest things that organizations don't have the self awareness to be able to say, "Oh no, we're totally command and control here." Uh, well, so the the assessment was created by uh, the authors, the, the creators of the framework, the competing values framework, um, and they recommend getting the senior leadership to get in the room and do it together. But um, I slightly break with that um, because what I like to do is get more people in the organization to to fill that out and it's really quick and easy to do the six questions right and you're you're allocating 100 points across four options six times and it's, it's really quite quick um and i i often find that that there is more um more insight from the people um working at, at, know, at the coal face filling that out than when senior leaders do it because often yeah. you know, senior they might genuinely believe that because that's what they want to be true, but they're, they're not on the ground, they're not seeing it. So I, I like to do both, uh, but yes, very few, very few really will truly admit to being you know, fully stability and control. But uh, um, but even if they, you know, if if they do say, yeah, we've, we've got these policies or that policy, we can then start saying, okay, well, specifically, what do you do to the, the means that you've put yourself there? And, and often they can't answer those questions and it becomes quite an interesting discussions from there. So yeah, you're, oh, you're right, there is okay. an element of that. So you can do sort of like a based on what kind of conversation with them, like prove to me that you're transparent and everybody feels this way. <laughs> I mean, well, not, not in the, you'd, you would obviously ask it in a more polite way, but that, yeah. show me the evidence that this is actually something more than just your gut feeling. That's it. And, and so what I'll say to them is that if they, you know, if they've, you know the, the, the four culture types, right, the control competes, which are, are quite common. Um, and then you've got create and collaborate, which are the more agile, friendly, innovation, focus on people, focus on, on, on customer value and, and experimentation. Um, and, and if they put themselves up there, I'll say, that's great. Can you, can you tell me about some of the policies, the tangible policies you've got in place to encourage experimentation? Yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe sometimes they'll say, you know, we have a hackathon, you know, once every six months. Um, but, you know, and uh, talk to me about how you treat failure specifically. And, uh, and, and you know, often they realize, like, oh, wow, we, we really don't have any, right? <laughs> and, and so but, and, you know, a great example, someone like 3M, right, yeah. who uh, in Maker of Post-its, among other things, they have a, they have a policy saying we make 30% of our revenue or we aim to from products created in the last four years. And that yeah. trickles down to a whole bunch of policies, including 15% experimentation time. So they could answer that question really easily, but most organizations I work with cannot. And it actually becomes clear that they're not up there at all. Do you find that, that many of them will 
as as evidence reference something like you mentioned the google thing um it's been a while since i taught at google but when i was there and i asked about that they're like oh yeah we don't do that anymore um, right. but they still get all the you know accolades for it and everybody thinks that's happening it, do you find that that's a like it's something they did once and they always talk about it but it's not like a habit anymore i i and, and no mostly they didn't do it even once um, but uh, <laughs> they just made it up. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, Google once had a policy of twenty percent experimentation time, right? Yeah. And, and that's something they did for they did it for a long time. They don't do it now. Whereas, you know, sometimes I'll say, yeah, we we did a we did a hackathon, or, or, or you know, once every quarter we spend a day, and it's like, well, that's good, but it's nowhere near enough. Um, and and so, yes, that happens. Um, you 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 do get that, but uh, you know, for me. The, the, the important thing here, and, and one that we forget often as agilists, is when you when you seek to be more adaptive, more responsive, more innovative, more agile, that's that's a gain that you get, but you have to give something yeah. up, right? Yeah. And what you have to give up is stability and control. And so it's really easy to say to be, we want to be agile. The, the, the flip side of that is, okay, are you willing to give up some stability and some control in your organization in order to do that? And often the answer is is less clear for them. So actually phrasing it that way is is quite valuable sometimes. It's easy to say I want more of something. It's yeah. harder to say I want less of something. I, I, yeah, I want I want I definitely want to dig into that. The reason I was sort of hammering on that, you know, are they really doing this stuff is I feel like there shouldn't, I feel like there's an amount of shame that comes with like they want they don't want to admit that we don't do all that stuff. But if they are more on the controlling side then okay. I mean, to me, that's not, it doesn't have to be a negative thing or a bad thing. Yes. It might put them at risk for a lot of things, but there's values in place and they're the values that are there. Um, And, and I think that thing about the cost of getting what they want, that's the thing I was going to ask you about next is do they really understand what it's going to take? I mean, like how much (laughs) cod they're going to have to eat every day to look like the rock. Well, it's funny. It's funny you uh, you you talk about um, diet and nutrition and training, right? Because the the analogy I I, I give is um, if someone says to me, you know, would you like to, would you like to to drop one or two percentage of body fat? It's like, well, I, I know I'm quite a skinny guy already, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't object to being leaner, right? If they say, right, you need to drop your calories and run ten miles a day, I'll say, well, wait a minute, my my biggest problem is that I'm too skinny and I actually want to I want to bulk up. Yeah. Um, and and so if you're giving me a prescription that moves me away from my goal, um, then 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 I'm going to resist it. Whereas you know if you then say right, in order to bulk up, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I might still say like you, it's like oh, actually, I don't want to do that. Right? So it, it's going in with full transparency, and that's really why I wrote the book. Right? It's like if you want agility, you have to make changes in all of these areas. You know, yeah. Culture is one of them, but but governance and HR and structures, and it's like. It, this is what it takes, right? and, and and if you don't want to do that, that's okay. But don't protect, don't don't say you want to do it, um, and and then just ignore half of the stuff you need to do because that's going to result in frustration all around. Yeah. Do you, do you think that I was, I'm thinking about the example you just gave? Like if you said to me, run ten miles a day. Like I did an experiment last year. I know how many miles I can run a day before my body starts to break down. And if I tried to run 10 miles a day, my knees can't handle that. I'm too old. You know, they're too messed up. So um, I might want that, but I'm not physically able to get there. Or maybe the, the dietary changes required to get my knees into shape where I could do that, whatever. Um, are there organizations that you you run across, you feel like they want the thing, 
but you just have to look at him and be like, yeah, you're not going to get that. That's not um, happening for you. <laughs> no, I don't think like if there's a, if there's a genuine desire and, and it makes sense. Cause remember that like not all organizations should be shooting to be predominantly um, flexible and adaptive, right? If, if right. I'm an air traffic control organization, for example, I want stability and control over everything, right? So there's not a, a good or a bad, there's not a right or a wrong. There's a, what we believe will help us be successful in our context. So actually that's sometimes okay, but it's, it's very rare when there's a real desire to change and, and by change, I mean, actually make the changes necessary. And the sacrifices, yeah. Yeah, uh, that organizations are unable to do that. You know, they may hit some road bumps, right? And they may think that A is going to work and actually B is, is a better option, but then they find that out and they change. And so, I, no, I've, nev- I've never seen uh, where there's genuine desire, like the company's knees giving out, right? But when it, what, I've, what I've seen is two reasons. One, we want to be agile, but we don't really know what that means. Uh, And two, um, we do know what it means, um, and then we choose not to do it. (laughs) So they're the reasons I think organizations fail. So they, and they may not even be actively choosing to do it. That might just be like muscle memory from the control thing that they haven't been able to shake off. Yeah. And and it might be that they don't know how to change culture, right? Because- Um, people often people say we, we need to revolve our culture to one that is more aligned with the values and principles of agility. It's like, great. How do you plan to do that? Um, yeah, I don't know. How do you change culture? You should just go and change it. Um, and, and this is another thing I say, right? culture is an emergent property, like a shadow on a wall. You, know, you don't just change the shadow, right? You have to change the things that cause the shadow. Uh, and, and for culture, that's people's behavior. But even then, you don't get to directly change people's behavior. You change the system in which they operate, and then the behavior changes, and then the culture emerges. So it's, it's, and there's a lot of experimentation, and, and, and it's, a lagging, it's a lagging indicator. So it really comes back to a systems thinking kind of approach to yeah. gaining clarity on what's going on. And then, I mean, and, yeah. and those are pretty downstream changes. Like if, if it is, a, it's a pretty lagging indicator to see when that actually shows up that people aren't afraid of failure anymore. Yeah. And, and so the, the, I, but so you can't, you can't manage those lagging indicators, right? So I always say manage the inputs. And, and for me, the inputs are, and there are probably more, but the five I like to focus on are structures, policies, incentives, metrics, and your leadership behaviors. So for example, right, leadership behavior, people say it's okay to fail, but if you're berated every time you do fail, and if the leader's never demonstrate their own failures. Well, you can tell me all day long that it's okay to fail, but I'm probably going to not fail. Thank you very much. And I'm not going to take that risk because you don't show me that it's okay in your behavior. So the behaviors of leaders is one of those five levers uh, that that we have to to shift the culture. Now you change that and then people's behavior will change. And then suddenly there will be more experimentation. But of course, yeah. you need the, the 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 policies to go with that, right? In governance, because it's one thing if to say we should fail, but if you don't, if you've got to have a business case and a, a fixed scope, and 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 failure is, is not tolerated by PMO, again, there's going to be a challenge, right? So it all yeah. it all hangs together. Systems thinking is a great way of looking at it. And I like that. I really like the shadows example too. I just think about like when I'm trying to make my cat will chase shadows on the wall if I make uh-huh. them, and I try to make rabbits and stuff with my hands, but. What I think is going to happen with the shadow when I do stuff with my hands is almost never what actually happens. I'm like, well, that just looks like two fists. Like that's not, (laughs) but it's the same kind of thing. You're having to test the environment and see like, if we make this adjustment, what happens down the road? 
And, and so the, the culture itself is, is quite a lagging indicator, but people's behaviors aren't, right? So you, know, you get faster feedback on how I, I put this policy in place, right? For example, we, we've removed the cap on the number of uh, holiday days or vacation days to, uh, uh, to use your word. Um, and, uh, and, 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 no, and people are taking fewer days, right? Well, yes. that shouldn't happen. What is that about? Oh, uh, and when, you know, this happened to, to, to Reed Hastings at Netflix, and he said, but only when he started actively taking more holiday and talking loudly about it, did people think, oh, it actually is okay. This isn't just a, ma- a management gimmick, right? So, um, so again, there's, there's that feedback loop on how people act. And then, of course, you change the policy. He changes his behaviors. Suddenly, people are taking more holiday days, which was the idea. And again, the culture shifts a little bit. So, you, you, you know, the, the behaviors are, are a good indicator of what the culture will be. I think the holiday example is really interesting, too, because I can see places where people are afraid to take the holiday. But I've also worked at a lot of places where, I mean, you have the AdWords example in the book, but where people didn't take vacation because they just didn't, they liked the work so much. That it's like you're depriving them of something when they go on vacation. <laughs> Don't make me relax. Exactly. Um, well, I mean, and maybe that's a more of an American thing, but it's just like, yeah. If I, I mean, when I there are days where I try to like purposely not work. Like, there's one day a week when I purposely like I'm not going to work today, and I have to monitor myself and like force myself to not work because I really like what I do, and mm-hmm. I know I need the break, but it it requires a lot of discipline to take the break. It does for some people. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. for, but, for others, for others, it requires a lot of discipline to, to stop taking the break. Right. Yeah. But but um no, you're absolutely right. And I I have that mindset around me. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm not working, I'm I'm reading about something or I'm writing an article or I'm making a video. And it's like I can't, like I'm going, I'm going on vacation next next week. And and I'm thinking, right, how I uh, it's kind of twitchy because I'm not used yeah. to doing nothing. <laughs> right. Um so yeah, I think you're right, and and you know there'll, there'll be a small number of people who, who for whom that that's not the right thing, and they they should just keep their head down working, and that's what they enjoy, and that's okay. But I think there are a lot of people who love to take time off and spend that with their their families and their kids, yeah, um, and friends, and them, um, but they just don't feel like they can do it until the environment and the culture is right, such that they do. And uh, I think that's what we need to try and create, right? If you want to, great. If you don't, that's also great. Yeah. But I, yeah, and I think how you maybe how you interpret the behavior is a big part of this as well. Like when when I look at it, are they not taking vacation because they're scared, or because you know they just love this? Like this is the their passion. Yeah. Um, so can we talk about the leadership thing a little bit? And yes. that you mentioned the video. So you had a video you posted, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, where you talked about how if, if the the teams are not responding, it's the leader's fault. Yeah. I was deliberately provocative, but that, but actually, you know, I, I so I, I borrowed that uh, that quote from. Um, I think this book is called Extreme Ownership. It's um, uh, Leif Babin and uh, another Navy SEAL that wrote that. Forgive me, I forget the second author's name. Um, and and they 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 say you know there are no bad teams, just bad leaders. But I kind of slightly adapt it, just bad leadership, right? Because it's the leadership, not the person, that's the problem. Right? Um, so for me, and I have found this over and over in my career as a scrum master, as a coach, when the teams aren't delivering, it's almost always the fault of something beyond the team. Right? And, and, and the analogy, you know, I like a good analogy, um, is, uh, is the Ferrari in a traffic jam. Right? There's, there's no point in tuning the engine in that Ferrari 
and saying, why aren't you moving? Right? Actually, the, the, the fault is beyond the Ferrari. You've got to remove those cars out of the way and maybe they'll, they'll, they'll move down the road. And so your job as a leader, right? So firstly, people get a little bit defensive when I say this, or what do you mean it's my fault, right? Um, but actually, this is great that it's your fault because also you are empowered to fix it by changing yeah. the system and no one else is. So if you've designed a system that isn't getting results, Instead of trying to look and blame the individuals in that system, maybe look at how the system is designed. And maybe if you change the design of the system, you will get the teams being more effective. And all of the case studies, you know, you probably uh, read Turn the Ship Around, David Marquet, right? Almost yep. no almost no personnel changes from the worst performing submarine on the USS Santa Fe to the best performing in the Numi example, which is another one I talk about in the book, right? When the, the joint venture between Toyota and General Motors, um, again, they didn't change the people, they changed the system and they went from worst performing to best performing. And, and it's just a theme over and over again. Yeah. So I want to, Jocko Willenick is the other author of the, of the book, which- Thank you. Shout out to Jocko. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, I, I guess- that's sort of a big deal too, because I, I feel like if you're leading people and you're not getting the results, it's easy to go to the blame trigger. But I always feel like the first responsibility is to point the finger at yourself. Like, what have I done? What can I do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how can I create a behavior that might create change? And I think it's hard for a lot of people to take that. I mean, I'm always thinking about Christopher Avery and the responsibility process, but to yeah. take that step away from blame and take ownership of it, like, okay, I've made choices. They led to this. Damn. It's, it's hard. Way. It's hard, but it's really empowering because if the blame lies elsewhere, then you can't fix that Yeah. as a leader, right? That's, that's out of your hands. If the blame is, and I say the blame is with you, right? If the problem is with the system you've designed or someone else in the organization has designed, you can fix that and actually say, well, would you rather have the levers of power in your hand or in someone else's hand? <laughs> it's, it's, it takes a little bit of uh, sort of stepping up, but then, then it's incredibly empowering because you get to fix the problem because you can't fix other people. Yeah. What you can do is fix the system in which they operate and you'll get dramatically better results. And Deming talked about this right, um, all the time, you know, he, and I've, I've read quotes between 85 and 94% of the, the results you get is down to the system in which people operate, not the people. Um, and, and there are many quotes around that from Deming, but it, but I, I, I have found the same too. So kind of maybe along those lines, you know, you talked before about how the, you have to have these conversations with people in the organization about if the organization is capable of change. When we talk about the leadership, do, do you have that conversation with them as well? Like, what are you willing to give up personally to achieve this? Yes, but you know, I don't, I don't necessarily. Yes, I do have those conversations. Actually, it's often where I start because okay. I, I don't, I don't think this is possible without the most senior leadership being on board with yeah. the change. Because who's the designers of the system? Right? You can, you can, you can have a, you know, a slight subculture maybe in the department or within the team, but. Really, you, you need the leadership of, of whichever area it is to be driving this change, right? And so their behaviors are one of the things that have to change. And, and so leadership and management, another one of those enablers. It's, it's really, really important that you think about how you show up every day. And, and, and things are different in, uh, in the world of agile leadership. I actually think it's far more rewarding um, but, but each to their own. Right? You, you lose some things and you gain some things. And 
ultimately they're either willing to do that or they're not. But yeah, I have those conversations up front and say, you know, if you keep, if you keep leading in this style, you know, you're probably going to limit your success. And a lot of that is trying to change that mindset of actually you can be a different type of leader and it's more effective when volatility and uncertainty and complexity is very high. Actually, I need to be this kind of leader. Um, and they do, they'd get that. They get that. What they, what they are is, is scared um, about what happens if they give control and they don't know the mechanics of how to do it. So we can work through those things. Yeah. I feel like so much of so many of the conversations I've been having recently keep coming back to two basic topics, system thinking and growth mindset. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's just like this echo that keeps like hitting over and over again. Because, um, because it is, it is it, like organizations are systems, right. And, and no, no, like you probably, you probably noticed that you know, going, going through the book is like each area I tackle as an independent chapter, but they, they're so interconnected that to change one is almost to change the others. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you don't understand the subtle interconnectedness and, uh, and how complex systems are a, a product of the interactions between those parts, then you'll, you'll find it very difficult to, to design the in interventions that are going to lead you in the right direction. So systems thinking is, is a fabulous approach to this. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having this conversation. I wanted to, to do it mostly if you're listening to this, part of why I wanted to talk with Kareem about this was I'm hoping this can be something you can pass on to the folks upstairs as they're heading down this path. And maybe they'll start to ask themselves some questions that hadn't occurred to them before. And hopefully they'll also pick up Kareem's book, The Six Enablers of Business Agility. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um, it's uh, it's a labor of love, and uh, hopefully, it, it puts you know a good ten to twelve years of of agile transformation uh, knowledge uh, that I've accumulated um, into one place where you can you can read about all of these things. And and it was a I wouldn't say it was a blast writing, but uh, it certainly was a was satisfying to have finished. <laughs> well, and I want to also just point out if you are somebody who's a coach or who works, you know, with organizations that are trying to do this. I mean, I've interviewed David Marquet, I think at least twice, maybe more. Um, and I've read all his books and I still needed to be refreshed on the Santa Fe. Like I knew the vague outlines of it, but getting those details um, that, that, that Kareem took the time to put into the book is, is one of like the hidden gems. And I mean, obviously the larger message is great, but if you're somebody who works in this field, um, being able to get those connections put together mm. is really helpful. Yeah, so those 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 stories those stories are I think interesting to read. But but also those stories you, uh, when you tell those stories to leaders, it really helps to illustrate the points. And yeah, um, and so yeah, I, I find those 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 useful tools. The storytelling for change is an effective tool, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's briefly talk about um, some of your other stuff, like Agile yeah. Center and and the Academy. Yeah, a couple of couple of exciting things. I'm doing I'm doing a lot of um, certified agile leadership training. Where I basically the book the book was written off the back of that course, so that the course existed. But it, and they're super aligned, and I'm doing a lot of that. I'm actually uh, launching an on demand version of that, so it won't be a Cal, but it will be the same content, um, and you'll get to hear me and see me talking about all the same stuff uh, and with quizzes and interactive stuff. And and that's actually been really cool. Designing a an on demand self paced uh, program. Uh, to get all of the learnings in, sort of redesigning it for that. That's been super exciting. And we, we know we're up to module four. We've got three more modules to get out. And that's been super fun. Uh, so, uh, so that's happening. And the, the Business Agility Academy. So I'm, I like to keep myself busy. Um, the business <laughs> I started with a colleague of mine. Really, the, 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 the idea is that how, how do we really professionalize business agility coaching? 
And, and I find that there's a, a lot of people practicing this who really don't understand the organization. They don't understand how business operates, right? You know, we, we kind of slightly turn our nose up at people with MBAs, but then you know, that's really, really valuable knowledge when you're speaking with leaders and yeah. you're speaking about how to, uh, to do complex change in an organization. You should understand how to read a balance sheet and a cash flow statement. You should understand innovation. You should understand business strategy, and you should bring that together in your toolbox with all of the cool agile stuff. And that's really the area we're focusing on, validating people's journey in that space. Okay. So that's the Business Agility Academy. Yeah. Uh, and- yeah. So it's it's going to be the most rigorous, um, most rigorous uh, credential out there. So it's not, you know, it's not two-day trainings. You know, we're not, we're not kind of selling two-day trainings. You, you take your own journey in whichever area you want, whether it's you know, Scrum or Kanban or Safe or this or, or innovation. And then you come to us with case studies and client references and we validate you have got those core capabilities so that's what we're aiming for okay and and i just want if you can briefly explain what you mean when you say cal because i'm not sure everybody who listens to this is going to be familiar with it that's a good call out cal certified agile leadership training which is the the, the scrum alliance is uh, kind of uh, offering for for senior leaders and those coaching senior leaders through to to creating business agility so uh, yeah cal is is what it's shortened as um, but uh, certified agile leadership, uh, and again, it's it's the thing that I enjoy teaching the most. I love teaching Scrum, but but this is where really where my passion is. And so and so, what he was saying was he he's got the Cal classes, but you're offering an online non certified version of that as well. Yeah, because for two reasons: one, so that the people who come on my Cal class, my two day training, can can go back and watch that. Right. So okay. Like so many people forget stuff, and two, you know, not everybody, not everybody is able to travel or, or wants to take two days out of work. So if you just want the learning and you don't mind not having the piece of paper, then uh, which which I think you know the learning is most of the value anyway. Then then you can do this another way, yeah. right? And it's uh and and it's it's cheaper, it's easier, it's at your convenience, and of course you, it never goes away. So you can go back and revisit that. And I think that's the way training is going, and and I think we we need to be offering that as an option too. Cool. All right. So I'm going to include links to all of this. I really appreciate you writing the book and taking the time out to be interviewed again. And I hope you actually get to take a vacation. Well, yes, next week, <laughs> next week, I will be in Turkey for the week with my family, loving it. So awesome. uh, looking forward to that. And uh, I appreciate you reading the book, uh, Dave, and, and all your feedback and, and having me on again. Uh, so uh, much appreciated. It's always fun talking. Yeah. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. If you learn to work the old-